Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. Heads up that you also might hear two different hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. With that said, on with the show. Welcome to this day in history class. It's July 18th. Today in the year 64, a fire broke out in Rome that would destroy a lot of the city. It would also make the Emperor Nero infamous. It's probably the thing people associate most with Nero today. So Nero was the great-grandson of Caesar Augustus. He became emperor at the age of 16, and he was very ambitious. This also ran in the family. His mother was also very ambitious, but he got her out of the way first by moving her to a different residence, and then allegedly by killing her. He also wanted to build a giant palace complex of his own and call it Neuropolis. This fire, though, it probably started near the chariot stadium known as the Circus Maximus. The Colosseum that people think of today was not yet built. The wind spread the fire to wooden housing. Sometimes this housing is described as slums. Sometimes it's described as apartments. It was basically densely packed wooden housing that allowed the fire to spread very, very quickly. Rome had 14 districts at the time. Three of them were totally destroyed in this fire. Almost all of them also sustained some damage. Tacitus wrote about this in his history, calling it a disaster that was, quote, graver and more terrible than any other which had befallen this city. He also said that people were prevented from fighting the fire. There were definitely firefighters in Rome at this point, but it's not clear why they either couldn't or didn't fight the fire successfully. He did not write this history when it happened, though. He would have been a child or maybe young teenager when the fire actually occurred, and he wrote about it later. On July 24th, people managed to create a fire break, which finally stopped the spread of the fire, but it started up again a few days later. Overall, it was catastrophic for Rome. Nero blamed it on Christians, and then he used the fire as an excuse to persecute them, including torturing and executing the Christian population of Rome. He also used some of the land that had been cleared by the fire to start building some of those fancy new palaces that he had been so enthusiastic about. He also implemented new building codes. He built other structures as well. All of this uh, contributed to the suspicion that he had had something to do with the fire or at least hadn't tried very hard to stop it. And as for probably the most frequently asked question, no, Nero did not actually fiddle while Rome was burning. The fiddle wasn't invented until much later on. He did like music and play instruments. The instruments that he played were more like a lyre. And Tacitus did claim that as Rome was burning, Nero performed a song about the burning of Troy on his private stage. Even if you're thinking about the more figurative term, fiddle, rather than actually playing the fiddle as an instrument. It's not exactly that he just sat around frivolously doing nothing while the fire was happening. Tacitus sort of implies that he did not come back until his some of his personal property was at risk of the fire. But once he was back, he set up shelters, he distributed food, and those shelters and food distribution points included on his own grounds. Nero's power as emperor did eventually wane. He died on June 9th of the year 68 when he was facing arrest and a likely execution, and he instead took his own life. 
Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison, who edits and produces all these episodes. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also tune in tomorrow for the story of a convention that was the first of its kind. Hi again. Welcome to This Day in History class, where history waits for no one. The day was July 18, 1969. The Organization of American States called for a ceasefire in the so-called soccer war between El Salvador and Honduras. In 1969, about 3.5 million people lived in El Salvador, and a lot of the country was owned by the land-owning elite. At the same time, about 2.6 million people lived in Honduras, a country that shared a border with El Salvador but was much larger. Honduras was also controlled by wealthy landowners, but the prospect of cheap land and of escaping an oppressive government drew Salvadorans to the neighboring country. By that year, more than 300,000 Salvadorans were living in Honduras. Landowners in El Salvador supported the mass immigration, which freed up land in their country. But Honduran peasants were not so happy with the influx of immigrants, as they were already vying to get more land in their country. Landowners in Honduras had formed a group called the National Federation of Farmers and Livestock Farmers of Honduras, and as they promoted their own interests, they also encouraged Honduran nationalism. Already resentful of Salvadoran migrants, Hondurans began beating, torturing, and even killing Salvadorans. The Honduran government passed an agrarian land reform law to lessen the resentment that many Hondurans had for Salvadorans. It called for Salvadoran immigrants to give up their land and redistribute it among native-born Hondurans. But that legislation wasn't really effective, and the reform ended with Honduran President Oswaldo López Arellano deporting thousands of Salvadorans. As the migrants returned to El Salvador, the government struggled to deal with the influx of people, and Salvadoran landowners called for military action. El Salvador began claiming it owned the land that was taken from El Salvadoran immigrants in Honduras. On top of all that conflict, other land and border disputes were underway in the region, and El Salvador and Honduras were slated to compete in the qualifying matches for the FIFA World Cup. The first game was played in the Honduran capital of Tegucigalpa, where Honduras won 1-0. In a game in San Salvador on June 15th, El Salvador won 3-0. Honduras was mocked and Honduran fans were ridiculed at the game. The deciding match was set to take place on June 27th, but that same day, El Salvador announced that it was severing diplomatic relations with Honduras. The deportation and immigration issues had gotten so bad that El Salvador accused Honduras of committing crimes that constitute genocide and not holding anyone responsible for it. Tensions were already running high, but after El Salvador won the deciding match 3-2 in Mexico, conflict at the border intensified. On July 14th, El Salvador invaded Honduras and began bombing it. The Honduran army was small, and El Salvador was stronger on the ground. In the air, the Hondurans had the advantage. In El Salvador, Honduran aircraft targeted oil facilities, 
the Organization of American States called for El Salvador to withdraw from Honduras. El Salvador refused to withdraw unless Honduras agreed to give reparations to displaced Salvadorans and not to harm Salvadorans in Honduras. A ceasefire was arranged on July 18th, and it took effect on the 20th. But by that time, somewhere around 3,000 people had died in the fighting and more were displaced. El Salvador didn't leave Honduras until August 2nd, when the Honduran government promised not to mistreat Salvadorans living in Honduras. Still, the border remained in dispute. Trade between the two countries was disrupted, affecting their economies and the Central American common market. A peace treaty between El Salvador and Honduras was not signed until 1980. Though the conflict did not actually start because of the soccer game, the name The Football War or The Soccer War stuck. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you're so inclined, you can follow us at TDIHC Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back with more history tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.